Let me invite you to turn in the scriptures to the book of Ecclesiastes as we're continuing our series in this book. Our reading this morning is Ecclesiastes 9, the very last verse, verse 18 through chapter 10, verse 15. Uh, several times uh, in Ecclesiastes, the speaker or the preacher, as he's called, he says that he uh, went to examine not just wisdom but also folly or foolishness. And I've tried to make the point, uh, as this has come up, that he's not doing this because he thinks that folly, foolishness, has the potential to be something good. He's just trying to understand wisdom better by studying the opposite of wisdom, which is folly. You know, we sometimes learn by watching uh, mistakes being made. Especially, it's good to learn from watching other people's mistakes. It beats making your own. It's like when you're learning a sport, I don't know, golf, for example, trying to improve your golf swing. Sometimes it's instructive to watch somebody who's using the improper form, and that can help you learn what the proper form is. Similar sort of thing going on in Ecclesiastes. The preacher, he's interested in wisdom, uh, but uh, sometimes he learns about wisdom by focusing on folly, and our text today is a case in point. The section right before it in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, it dealt with wisdom. Wisdom was a key word in that section. Really, the key word in our text today is folly or foolishness. If you listen as we read, you will hear the words for fool, folly, foolishness, and so on show up several times. So let's begin Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 18, reading through chapter 10, verse 15. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves." He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of, his, of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Would you please pray with me as we come to our study of God's word? Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your spirit to rest upon us and to grant us the wisdom that we need to hear your word rightly. Lord, may we not be fools this morning, those who hear your word and take no notice of it, but may we be 
the wise. May we be those who build our house on uh, the solid rock of your word and of the word, Jesus Christ, the word incarnate. Lord, bless our study of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by saying that Satan is not the evil twin brother of Jesus. And for regular churchgoers, that's probably obvious. You uh, probably never even thought that. But people have such weird ideas about God and about Jesus that sometimes it's important to make these things clear. Satan is not more or less on an equal footing with Jesus. They weren't twins you know, separated at birth, one turned out good and the other turned out bad. They are not evenly matched opponents at all. I remember one pastor uh, comparing Satan and his demons to the Washington Generals basketball team. The Washington Generals, uh, those some of you know, but uh, it's the team that always plays against the Harlem Globetrotters. The whole point of their team, the whole point of the Washington Generals is to be the team that the Globetrotters beat. (laughs) They're pretty much there for entertainment purposes, to look foolish and incompetent while the Globetrotters do their amazing tricks on the basketball court. That's how one-sided the conflict is between the devil and his angels and Jesus and the hosts of heaven. It's no contest. Now, at the same time, we need to acknowledge that Satan has incredible destructive power, and so we need to take him seriously. 1 Peter chapter 5 describes him as a roaring lion, wandering around seeking people to devour. Uh, And you read the New Testament, and it's clear that demons tormented a lot of people uh, during Christ's ministry, and he was setting them free right and left. C.S. Lewis says this in the preface to the Screwtape Letters says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, that is the demons, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We need to find the right balance between those two extremes. You know, we need to avoid the extreme of just disregarding Satan and his demons. But we also need to avoid the opposite extreme of obsessing over them and basically living in fear of them. We need to have uh, kind of the, the healthy respect for Satan, like the kind you have for a mean, nasty dog on a chain. I mean, if you know how long the chain is, and you keep a healthy distance from him, you'll be fine. But don't ignore it, and don't allow yourself into getting, to getting within attacking distance. Okay, now, you're probably all wondering, you know, what a scary horror movie did Dr. Roglin watch this past week that he's talking about Satan and demons and stuff this morning? We're reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Not a book that ever mentions the devil or evil spirits or never discusses spiritual warfare and that sort of thing. So why am I going on about all of this uh, uh, scary stuff this morning? 
Well, I was pondering things this past week, and I realized that there is a connection between Ecclesiastes and spiritual warfare. Ecclesiastes is very much a book about wisdom and its opposite, folly, foolishness. And I've made the point several times in this series that that Jesus represents true wisdom. Jesus is the embodiment, the incarnation of wisdom. But then that got me thinking, if Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, what or who is the embodiment of folly? Who represents folly and foolishness? Seems to me that if Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, then Satan must be the embodiment of folly. And then as I was reading our text this past week, it jumped out at me at just how much it sounds like it's inspired by descriptions of the devil. For example, did you notice how serpents started showing up here for the first time? First time we hear about serpents in the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So some guy, he's like, he's tearing down a wall for some building project, and the poor fool doesn't realize that a serpent has found some kind of hollow space in it to make a, net, a nest, and so the guy starts tearing into the wall, scares the serpent, and it bites him. Another serpent in verse 11, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, I don't need to state the obvious that uh, the Bible frequently associates the devil with the serpent. From the very start of the biblical story back in Genesis chapter 3 to the very end of the story in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which speaks of that ancient serpent, which is Satan. Just a remarkable coincidence that this passage, which speaks about wisdom's antithesis, folly, just coincidence that it starts speaking of serpents here? Well, take a look at chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Dead flies. Now, that could be translated as deadly flies, killing flies, flies of death. Actually mentioned in the sermon last Sunday that Hebrews chapter 2 calls the devil the one who holds the power of death. The devil is associated with the realm of the dead. Not only that, some of you know, one of the devil's names is Beelzebub. Do you know what the name Beelzebub means? It means the Lord of the flies. You know, flies spread disease. They spread death. They're drawn to death. They swarm around rotting dead carcasses. Where there's death, you find flies. This passage, it actually reeks of folly and death, of serpents and flies And ultimately, it reeks of the evil one, the great serpent, the lord of the flies, Beelzebub. Just as wisdom speaks of Christ and his kingdom, so also folly speaks of Satan and his twisted, awful kingdom. 
If you look about at this passage, if you start paying attention to the details, it tells you about how destructive folly is. First Peter says, your adversary the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, folly is like that. It's destructive. Chapter 9, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner, one foolish sinner, one person who's not wise, destroys much good. It's destructive. And Foolishness eventually leads people to destroy themselves. You know, so often uh, Satan doesn't really need to work hard at destroying people because they often do it to themselves without his assistance. That's really the point in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 10. It's all about fools who harm themselves. Look at verses 8 and 9, for example. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. In the context, it's just talking about people who destroy themselves through their own foolishness and incompetence. They dig pits, but then it's like they forget that it's there, and they blunder into them. They try to quarry stones to build a house, but they drop it on their foot and break their leg. They cut trees, but... I don't know, the tree manages to fall on them. Fools destroy themselves by the things that they do, and they destroy themselves by the things that they say. Uh, That's verses 12 through 14. Look at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words, words of the fool's mouth, is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness, a fool multiplies words. You know, sometimes you just let people talk and they will completely discredit themselves. (laughs) We've seen it all the time. We've seen it in politics. We've seen it in sports stars, Hollywood celebrities. You know, they say something that winds up ending their career. Satan, he's, he's very interested in death and in destroying people, but if he can get fools to do the job for him, you know, so much the better as far as he's concerned. So we see that principle in this text. Now, there's an unpleasant reality that's here as well, which is that foolishness often seems to get the upper hand. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It can sometimes be more influential, have more of a destructive effect. And this is really the point in verses 5 through 7. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, I mentioned this um, in the sermon last Sunday evening, but... Uh, just for those of you who weren't there, haven't heard it, in general, historically, it's been the wealthy class and the nobility that produced the best educated men and women who were best equipped to rule wisely. Slaves, the poor, the working classes, they typically didn't have an education that would prepare them to rule well. And so in these verses, the preacher, he's he's observing this upside-down world 
where fools get promoted, set in many high places, riding on horses. The educated class, the wealthy, the princes, they're sitting in low places. They're walking instead of riding. We've seen fools promoted to power so many times that maybe it's not even shocking to us anymore. Nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes observed it all thousands of years ago. But the sad reality of it is that it often seems as if uh, folly has the upper hand in nations, in societies, in the world. I have to tell you, I've often struggled with the, the temptation scene of Jesus in the Gospels. At one point, where Satan is tempting Jesus to worship him, Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, says, The devil took Jesus up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. That passage used to puzzle me, because I thought it was saying that God had sort of delivered the authority and the glory of the nations over to the devil, and that just didn't make sense to me. And in fact, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Uh, It wouldn't make sense. God doesn't owe the devil anything. It's not as if, you know, God and the devil played some kind of primeval cosmic game of poker with the kingship of the world being the stakes, and somehow the devil, you know, managed to beat God and won the rights to the world, you know. Oh, oh darn. Well played, devil. Well played. Luke 4 does not say that God surrendered anything over to the devil. What Luke 4 is saying, what it's indicating, is that the foolish kingdoms of the world have surrendered their authority and their glory over to the devil. It's human beings. They're the ones who foolishly, of their own choosing, surrendered power to him. The devil is not the rightful owner of this world. Now, as they say, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If a person is openly squatting on someone's territory for a long enough period of time, Uh, Arguments are often made that the person in actual possession of the territory has more rights to it than the person who has the legal title. Squatter's rights, they're called. It's in that sense that Satan has this authority. It's in that sense that 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, can call Satan the god of this world. He's a squatter. He's not the rightful authority. He's not the rightful owner or ruler of the world, but in reality, he's often able to function that way. You probably weren't expecting any of this when we opened up Ecclesiastes this morning. I certainly was not expecting this sermon to emerge from the text when I first started preparing it. But the bottom line is our text is calling us to do spiritual battle with the principalities and evil powers of the devil and his followers. You think of a passage like Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You all are supposed to be doing that this week, every week. Uh, Some weeks ago, I read a little bit from C.S. Lewis's novel, Paralandra, in which the main character, a guy named Ransom, he's sent to this other planet uh, to battle with the forces of evil. And as he's getting ready to go, he mentions those verses from Ephesians 6 to his friend Lewis, who's helping him prepare for this journey. And uh, Lewis, his friend, thinks that it sounds, well, bizarre, and also maybe a little bit grandiose, that here's this ordinary guy, a linguist, actually, that he's been selected for this huge, important mission. And Ransom replies, when you come to think of it, is it odder than what all of us have to do every day? When the Bible used that very expression about fighting with principalities and powers and depraved spiritual beings at great heights, it meant that quite ordinary people were to do the fighting. Quite ordinary people. Ordinary people like you and like me are supposed to be doing this. Uh, So, what did you do this past week? (laughs) Did you do anything that seemed like you were wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness? Did you do anything that remotely resembled fighting with principalities and powers in the heavenly places? I'm guessing, and I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong, that for most of you the answer was uh, no. I don't recall doing that this last week, or really the week before, or can't remember when I've done that. Quite possibly you were engaged in some spiritual struggles without being aware of what's going on. That happens happens often enough. But I think in general, it seems to me that, you know, if you're wrestling with powers and principalities in the heavenly places, you probably ought to be feeling a little bit of the effect of that afterwards. You know, I mean, your body usually tells you if you've worked really hard around the house or in the yard or at the gym, you know, if your arm's back aren't stiff and sore, if you never broke out a sweat, that's telling you that, well, maybe you weren't really laboring in whatever it was that you were doing. And it seems to me that if we're actually wrestling with, grappling with, battling with evil principalities and powers in the heavenly places, we will feel some spiritual bruises afterwards will feel spiritually worn out, tired. I know you all have to go to work and go to school and do the shopping and take the dog for the walk and clean your room, get a haircut, take the car to the shop, and so on and so on. All these things you have to do during your typical week. But during your typical week, you also need to include some wrestling with the principalities and powers in heavenly places as part of your weekly tasks. This is not just something for super spiritual Christians, whoever those people are. It's for everyone. That's the point C.S. Lewis is making. That's the point the Apostle Paul makes 
I mean, he's writing that to the whole church, that they're wrestling with principalities and powers. I know, I know I'm laying something really weird and supernatural on you, and maybe it all sounds kind of vague here. What's the bottom line? What in the world does it mean for ordinary people like us, not like this uh, fictional character Ransom getting sent to other planets, what's it mean for us to do this? What does it look like in your household or in your neighborhood to wrestle with the principalities and powers in heavenly places? Well, let's go back to our text. Let's go back to verse 11 of our text. Ecclesiastes 10:11 says, If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, that little proverb, it, it has uh, multiple applications we could talk about. This morning, I want to point out uh, one main application for us. As followers of Christ, it's calling us to be serpent charmers as it were. You know, snake charming is actually very common in the Middle East and in the Far East, especially in India, where there are a lot of deadly snakes all over the place. Practice goes back for hundreds, thousands of years. And uh, snake charming, it's sometimes done for entertainment, but sometimes, often in fact, it's done as a form of pest removal. There are people who develop the skill of charming snakes, lulling them into some kind of sleepy, semi-hypnotized state so they can be safely handled and safely removed from your house, which is what you want. It's confronting a dangerous, deadly force and, and working to neutralize the danger. I think that's one way we can look at the sort of spiritual warfare that Paul is speaking of in Ephesians chapter 6. It's our calling as Christians to charm the serpents, as it were. To minister to people who are blinded by folly, and whether knowingly or unknowingly, are enslaved to the serpent, the embodiment of folly, the evil one. You know, we're trying to remove this deadly spiritual danger, the danger, the destructiveness of satanic foolishness. And the main way we do that is by lovingly presenting the gospel by whatever means we do that, the message of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Um, verse 12 says that the words of a wise man's lips win him favor. So how we use our lips, how we talk, what we talk about with non-Christians has a very powerful effect. I mean, it's the gospel that turns people from being fools into being wise people. That's what neutralizes spiritual danger. I personally think that one of the best places for people to hear uh, the gospel is in church. So, you know, work at getting your non-Christian friends and co-workers and family members to come to church. And if they're nervous about visiting, you know what? As a warm-up to that, 
you could invite them to watch a service online. In fact, you could invite them to come over and watch one with you since all this stuff is now getting uh, archived. It's available anytime. You could schedule it anytime during the week, invite them over, and you could talk about the sermon or the service afterwards. Now, you have to be patient and you have to be wise about this. Verse 11 is saying that snake charmers who get impatient and try to handle the serpent before it's been properly calmed and relaxed, they will get bitten. So it may take you weeks, months of patient snake charming before you're even at the point of inviting a particular friend or acquaintance to church, but, but pursue that, keep at it. So this is one important application for us. We need to see ourselves in the roles of snake charmers. There, you heard it here first, folks. That takes patience. And it also requires us to remain faithful and calm under pressure. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 10, it says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now let's think about that in terms of our you know, wrestling with the principalities and powers of the spiritual world. Yeah, I already said, you know, Satan is the illegitimate, he's an illegitimate ruler of this world, but even if he is, uh, he will still express his anger and his rage against believers in some manner. When that happens, don't panic. Don't run away. You remain at your post. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Remember who you are in Christ and respond calmly as you are berated or insulted or whatever. You know, snake charmers, they don't run away the first time the snake hisses at them. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So we need to show patience and calmness. We need to do this while folly reveals itself. Uh, that's another theme in this text. Verse 3, it says, Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. Now, that is not saying that the fool you know, is walking along the road with the sign taped to his back, you know, fool, kick me. And it's not that he's going up to people and saying, hey, you know what, I'm a fool. It's saying that anyone who comes into contact with him or her who is observant at all will eventually pick up on the fact that this person's a fool. Folly reveals itself. And sometimes... As a Christian, it's just your job to wait patiently while the fool reveals to the world, reveals this reality of his or her own accord. You don't necessarily even have to point it out to them or point it out to other people all the time. They're going to tell everyone one way or another. Sometimes your calling is simply to outlast foolishness. And that can mean just waiting it out while fools wear themselves out. Verse 15 says, The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Believers in Christ are renewed and strengthened by the Spirit every day. Unbelievers aren't. They eventually 
grow weary because of their foolishness. And if we patiently endure, if we remain at our posts, if we patiently and calmly work at charming the serpents, folly will run its course and will run itself out. Did you think that Ecclesiastes was just a book full of little nuggets of wisdom, a collection of life hacks, sort of thing you see on social media, you know, follow me for other helpful tips. No, 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 no. Ecclesiastes is equipping you with the wisdom you need to fight the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. It's teaching you how to resist the devil and all his foolishness so that he will flee from you. Brothers and sisters, may you all be strengthened for the fight by Jesus Christ, the Son of David, our great shepherd, and our true wisdom from God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a mighty Savior as we have, one who not only showed his strength by being willing to suffer and die on our behalf, but who also shows his wisdom and grants us his wisdom as well. Lord, we know that uh, times can be hard and confusing as we uh, watch the news, as we're inundated with uh, different messages. Lord, help us to, to have the wisdom to sort through it all, to see through the illusions, to see through the mirages of our culture, of our society. And would you strengthen us all spiritually that uh, we could resist the devil so that he would flee, that we could advance your kingdom in whatever sphere of life that we're in. Lord, uh, be with us, protect us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.